0: Hey there, this is Angel Donovan with another episode of DSR Become a Better Man. If you are new to this, if you are overwhelmed by all of the interviews on this podcast and you haven't had time to get through them, a good way or an excellent way to get started is to go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash get top 13. 13 as in a number, one free, get top 13. And there you will be able to download a audio between me and one of my coaches explaining the 13 big pieces of advice that we discovered in the first 15 years of doing this. So over 15 years, uh, the top pieces of advice, the 13 top pieces that we took away and thought were the best, most effective to get results quicker. So go check that out now. Now, looking at today's episode, we are going to be looking at some of the biggest misunderstandings men have about women when it comes to two areas. One, why women have sex, when and why they desire sex. And two, when women are interested in sex or not, or put another way, when they're interested in you or not. We're looking at this subject from a scientific research perspective today. With one of the most recognized scientists working in this area. This is an interview I've been wanting to do for quite a while now. So I'm really happy to have this guest on today's show. Today's guest is Professor David M. Buss. He's one of the founders of the field of evolutionary psychology. He has authored or co authored over 250 studies in the area. David has taught at Berkeley, Harvard University, the University of Michigan, and the University of Texas. His primary research focus is on strategies of human mating, including studies on mate selection, tactics of male attraction, infidelity, tactics of mate retention, so keeping the girl, tactics of mate poaching, stealing the girl, and the mating emotions of jealousy, lust, and love. He is also the author of several well-known books looking at the mating dynamics All of these books are a really thorough look at the subject, so a good place to start also. I've read all of them in some cases many years ago. And these books are Why Women Have Sex, Understanding Sexual Motivations from Adventure to Revenge and Everything in Between. Another one is The Evolution of Desire, Strategies of Human Mating. And another one is The Dangerous Passion, Why Jealousy is as Necessary as Love and Sex. There are some great aha moments from this interview and takeaways that will probably make you rethink some of your past experiences with women and see them in a new light, a clearer light. One of my takeaways was that men may need to pay a lot more attention to remaining objective about things when they're around beautiful women. As usual, if you want to get the show notes and all the links we talk about, and David gives a whole bunch of notes and references at the end of this show. Just go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash podcast and select the episode and you'll find all the links and information and other stuff there as well as the transcript. If you want all of that in your email inbox every time a show comes out, then go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash newsletter, pop your email in there and you'll get those show notes just like magic every time the show comes out. Now, please enjoy this exceptional interview with David M. Bus. I'm Angel Donovan, and this is the Dating Skills Podcast. This is a 14-year ongoing mission to discover the truth about what works in dating, sex, and relationships, to become a better man. Join me as I leave no stone unturned. Chase down every expert, role model, and mentor with insights to get us to that goal as fast as possible. This show is about bringing you the best of that information so that you can take it in and change your life for the better, step-by-step, episode-by-episode. David, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Hey, happy to be talking to you.
0: Great. I wanted to jump straight into why you do what you do. What kind of triggered, because you've been pursuing this research for a long time. So was there a time in your life where you got triggered and took an interest in this topic in particular? Or Something happened or why did you take such a great interest in this area?
1: Well, I guess it started when I was an undergraduate at university, and I wrote a paper as an undergraduate for a small undergraduate seminar called Dominance slash Access to Women, where I reviewed some of the primatological data on status and mating and some of the human data, read some ethnographies of traditional societies, and somehow the topic just gripped me as an undergraduate, and when I went to get my PhD, I kind of did a little bit of, I did a fair amount of reading on the side, but the topic didn't gain any resonance. But I was interested in not just mating, but human nature, and what are the causal origins of human nature. And I wasn't getting good answers in my uh, graduate classes, or my undergraduate classes for that matter, and it kind of led me to evolutionary theory and what i wanted to do is to integrate evolutionary theory with psychology and in my case with a special focus on human mating strategies because that's what interests me Uh, i noticed that a lot of um, social activity seemed to revolve around mating status seemed to be related to mating mating seemed to permeate everything including conversations i was having with my friends conversations everyone else was having movies TV, literature, plays, everything. I mean, mating permeates everything, but it was almost entirely untouched in the field of psychology. So I started dabbling a little bit, doing a little bit of research, and then one thing led to another, and it just took over my life.
0: It snowballed.
1: It snowballs, exactly. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, integrating evolutionary an evolutionary perspective really shed a lot of light on our sexual psychology on our mating psychology and so scientifically it started paying off mm. and at the time I started doing it there was really no one else who was doing it at the time I mean there was I guess uh, Lolita Cosmides was starting to apply it to cooperation and social exchange but there was almost no work on applying evolutionary theory to human mating strategies and so so I, in a way, I was very fortunate that I got it on the ground floor and started doing stuff before anyone else was doing it. And then it, and then, of course, now, I mean, it's really exploded and there's a massive amount of research and, of course, popular books on the topic.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there is a mountain. So how do you look at it today? Do you have like little boxes like when you're looking at the whole area of mating and sexual strategies and so on? Do you look at it as? Just a combination of the evolutionary aspect and the psychology aspect, like you were just explaining, or do you have a a different view of it today after all the work you've done? How do you kind of fit the pieces together and other people's research in your head?
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's a big question. So I'll try to take a stab at it. (laughs) But um, I, I guess the way that I see it is, I think the the fundamental framework that I started with is still, in some ways, the fundamental framework that I use to understand mating strategies today, and that's sexual selection theory. And that really has two basic components, which is, as Darwin identified, which is uh, mate preferences. So whatever qualities are desired by one sex in the other sex, that creates selection pressure because those who possess the desired qualities get chosen, those who lack the desired qualities get ignored, banished, or left out of the mating scene, Uh, And so over time, you see an increase in frequency of desired qualities, uh, just simply as a function of these mate preferences. That's what evolution means, is just change over time. And then the other process is intrasexual competition or same-sex competition. And in same-sex competition, basically members of one sex compete with one another in various ways, physically, socially, in terms of status hierarchies, in terms of verbal sparring or verbal derogation and then the winners of these same-sex competitions have a mating advantage they get set in the case of males they get sexual access preferential sexual access to women and so again you see evolution which is change over time an increase in the frequency of qualities associated with winning these same-sex battles whether physical or social and so that's the fundamental framework a sexual selection theory that that gave rise to these selective force gave rise to our mating psychology that we all carry around with us today. Now, to get to your the other aspect of your question or another cut at your question, what is the mating psychology that evolution has given rise to? And the way that I look at it is that we have a menu of mating strategies. We don't have just one mating strategy. We have a collection. So we do uh, short-term mating. Uh, we do long-term committed mating. That that one may seem obvious, but it's actually quite rare in the animal world. Only something like 3% of all mammals do long-term committed mating, but humans do. And then we do infidelity or EPC mating. We do serial mating, which is very common. So we break up, mate with one person for a while, break up. remate with another person, break up. So in studies in Western cultures, something like 85% of all people have been through at least one romantic breakup. And so remating, serial mating, is a very common mating strategy. So we have this collection of mating strategies, a menu, and which particular mating strategy we adopt or implement depends heavily on uh, things like our own mate value. So are we a 9, a 7, a a 5, or a 3? Um, because those higher in mate value can more easily implement their preferred mating strategy. Uh, It also depends on things like the sex ratio in the mating pool. So is there a surplus of women or is is there a surplus of men? Because that really changes the the mating dynamics. The rarer sex tends to have higher mate value. And it also depends on various other kinds of uh, social inputs. So even things like social norms, cultural norms, what is legally permitted, et cetera. And so that I think many of these uh, social and personal contexts influence the degree to which uh, we pursue one mating strategy versus another, and also influence the success of our pursuit of one mating strategy versus another. So that's sort of the uh, kind of an overview of the skeleton of how I think about mating. And then if you're interested, we can get into the details of, okay, well, what about long-term mating what about short-term mating what are our adaptations to switch mates what about infidelity uh we can get into any of those topics if you're interested but that's kind of an overview
0: Yeah, absolutely and i wanted to dig into some of your more recent papers i've seen go up you mentioned an acronym there epc was it
1: yeah it stands for extra pair copulation and so the pair, meaning the, the main pair bond, extra pair, meaning you're copulating with someone outside the pair bond. It's a very common acronym used in the avian biology literature, and it's been adopted in the evolutionary psychology. So people refer to, you know, you can. That's like affairs. But evolutionary conferences and people talk about EPC. Sure. Uh, it's sort of a, a Evo speak, if you will.
0: Right, right. <laughs> For people at home, is that always infidelity or can it mean other things as well?
1: Usually infidelity, I guess, if it's um, an open relationship, then it's not necessarily infidelity. So it can be consensual. Yeah. Like the polyamory and the, the yeah. swinging cultures, uh, communities. Yes. Consensual non-monogamy, yeah, of the which those would be two examples.
0: Great, great. All right, thank you for that. So I was just wondering, how about where you are at today in your, your relationship and social lifestyle? Where did you end up in it? Are, are you like married or how do you look at this from a personal perspective?
1: Well, I, t- I prefer not to get too much into my personal life, but yeah, basically, um, over time, one of the things you find out is you, you get to know yourself, and I'm basically, my fundamental, there are individual differences, in, dispositional differences in the degree to which people prefer pursuing short-term versus long-term mating, and I have come to realize about myself that I'm just fundamentally a long-term mater. And I have been in multiple relationships, so I guess I guess you'd say I'm a serial mater.
0: In the structure. Well, I think most people are today, right? Uh, with the divorce rate and, and everything, it seems like there's a lot of relationships that last about 10 years, which is a pretty long relationship. So there's a lot of people who seem to have had 10 years, 10 years, 10 years, or, or maybe 15 years and so on.
1: Yeah, or now in some cases, five, or if you're in Hollywood, maybe 18 months is a long. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I've lived in LA. It is a bit faster pace there. So, yeah, I wanted to dive into a bit more some of the stuff here. First of all, I wanted to kind of, because you, your work has been published in many, many books now. It's been put out there, and some of it's been taken by the media and popular culture, and it's kind of been like spread and, and carried out there. And I was just wondering if there are some big or common misunderstandings about evolutionary psychology and how it applies to sex and mating strategies that you see a lot in the, in the news or, you know, in other books or, or places like these.
1: Yes. Well, there are a lot of misunderstandings. So translating the scientific work, when it gets translated into the media outlets, it, there's a fair amount of distortion. So, so just as one example, I published a paper recently that got some media attention in the U.K. Uh, it was uh, called the Mate Switching Hypothesis, and I talked about adaptations for Mate Switching. One of which is infidelity or affairs that that, that and I focused on women that women sometimes have affairs as a means of mate switching and uh so the way that this got translated though and I talked about the circumstances in which it would occur various nuances and contextual features the way it got translated into some is uh women genetically programmed to, to cheat you know and so <laughs> that's not really what the the message is do we have adaptations that come online for infidelity in certain circumstances? Absolutely. But it's sort of different. So that's one of the misunderstandings is this sort of genetic program language, which implies that we're these uh, robots that can't do otherwise and that are oblivious to social context, to reputation, to social and environmental influences, and it's simply not not true. So, it's, so that's sort of one cut and a related one is this distinction that which is a false dichotomy that people bin things into two categories things are either evolved or environmental uh, genetic or social or there are these two categories and there aren't these two categories of causes I mean one of the things that evolutionary psychology does is it breaks down this artificial dichotomy we have an evolved mating psychology that is designed to be sensitive to social conditions, like our own mate value, like the sex ratio, like the cultural norms around mating. And so there aren't these two separate causes. All we have is our evolved psychology that's designed to be responsive to those social conditions. That's a difficult thing to get across to people. So sometimes I use, to try to clarify some of these misunderstandings, I use physical examples, which are overly simplified, but sometimes help to get across the point. So one I use is callus-producing mechanism. So if I say you have calluses on your, on your hands, and you say, well, is that environmental or is that biological? Well, that's in a way a nonsensical question because in order to get calluses, you, it requires in the environment of repeated friction to the skin, and it requires an adaptation, a callus-producing physiological adaptation that is designed to be responsive to that repeated fr- friction that says grow new skin cells in this area of your body. So if you apply that to human mating, one example I use there is jealousy. That is people, we have an evolved psychology of jealousy when it comes to long-term mating, but we don't wake up in the morning with this blind robotic jealous instinct that causes us to go out and do weird stuff. Uh, what it is is it's, it's an adaptation an evolved adaptation that's responsive to certain social inputs namely is partner displaying cues to infidelity or is there a mate value discrepancy between me and my partner such that my partner can do better elsewhere and that trips my jealousy adaptation so the framework is fundamentally an interactionist one and so the media questions that say well is this are you saying it's biological rather than social it's a nonsensical question from that perspective.
0: Right. So it sounds like it's often reduced to nature versus nurture and trying to single those out. Right. 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 I understand just on that, something that we've spoken about often on the podcast previously, we also do in our our coaching programs is talking to guys about uh, testosterone levels because uh, what we do is we get a lot of them to get them tested and they tend to be relatively low in some cases for the, for the guys we're coaching. So uh, like, lower than 400 nanograms per deciliter, for example. So the average is like 500 or something. Personally, what, what I found is that if we basically naturally modify that through diet, um, exercise, uh, and some, some other things, their libidos first change a little bit. And also their their psychology tends to change a little bit, you know, more focused, more driven, and things like this. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever like seen this kind of stuff treated or you've you've looked at that yourself because there seems to be a a trend of testosterone going down not exactly sure sure why for for guys even even younger guys say in their 20s or early 30s even
1: yeah i've i have read some of that and i guess the causes are unknown i mean i know that there are certain estrogenic compounds in plastics that potentially could be one of the causes of that I mean, my understanding is that testosterone acts as a kind of a threshold when it comes to sexuality, anyway, that you need a certain amount, but above that amount, it, it, there isn't necessarily a relationship between testosterone and sex drive. But if you're below that amount, then it, it can kill the sex drive.
0: Okay, excellent. The other thing I wanted to get from your perspective is, is what has been the most uncomfortable research conclusions you've, you've come across over time?
1: Well, I, I guess there are a few. Well, I'll mention two, One, and they're kind of related. One is uh, the desire for sexual variety. And it's clear that there are large sex differences in that. I mean, there's overlap in the distributions. And I know plenty of women who have a very strong desire for sexual variety and are, quote, male-like in their sexuality. But if you look at the distributions on things like sex drive, how many partners do you want to have? How many sex partners do you wanna have? Uh, how turned on are you by novelty, of someone you haven't slept with? All these indicators indicate massive sex differences. And, and we're not talking about small effects in psychology. If you, I mean, these, these dwarf, the standard effect sizes in psychology. And I think it's something that, it's interesting because it's something that women don't fully understand. And I've talked to many thousands of women by this point about mating. And they say things like, "Well, well, I have a desire for sexual variety, too. But I don't think they understand that a man could walk down two city blocks in a major city and pass half a dozen women and have perhaps fleeting sexual thoughts about all six of them. Whereas I think most women wouldn't experience that. And so there's this large sex difference in from a male perspective, it's, it's almost like evolution has played a nasty trick on us in that it's created in us a desire that can never be fulfilled. Perhaps if you're a king or a despot or, or Hugh Hefner or someone of like you know, who has enormous access to sexual variety, sexual access, then you could perhaps fulfill. But for most men, it's a desire that can never be fulfilled. It's unquenchable, if you will. So that's something that's uncomfortable. And women don't, as a general rule, don't, women feel uncomfortable with those findings. And related to that is that people worry about that this war gives people an excuse to cheat. So they say, oh, honey, I couldn't help it. My genes made me do it or my evolved desire for sexual variety forced me to sleep with the next door neighbor's uh, wife. I couldn't help it. So people worry about the kind of is the moral justification or excusing what some perceive as bad behavior. So those are kind of uncomfortable. I think, I think men would be uncomfortable if they fully understood women's sexual desires. So the fact is, even though women tend to have a lower desire for sexual variety, women in relationships are still attracted to men to other men. They do have a, an evolved psychology of infidelity, of affairs, and of using infidelity sometimes to get out of a bad relationship or to trade up. And so I think that's kind of di- would be I think it would be disturbing to men if they knew the full extent of women's sexual psychology. I know that as
0: I've learned more over time, I've been doing this for 15 years now, and I've read a lot of books, including yours and you know other people's. It, there's been definitely periods of discomfort Reading new things and, and it's uh, you have to kind of assimilate it and especially if you're in long-term relationships and you know that's your interest, I guess it's 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 something you kind of yeah. get over and,
1: and, and start to work with. Yeah, what what's your mating situation by the way?
0: I've I've just recently got into a relationship, but I've been more focused on relationships for about five years. So it's interesting. I see it un, as unproductive. I did short-term mating for a long time and dating multiple women and these kinds of uh, things. I found it took all my time and uh, kind of like my energy. And t- it was a huge distraction in my life and I wanted to get other things done. I got a couple of businesses and other things and, you know, I want to I get other things done in life. So at one point I decided to change and focus on long-term and I've been much more uh, satisfied.
1: Right. Yeah, that's interesting because I, one of the things I, um, I mean, I supervise a lot of graduate students and have over the years. And one of the things I kind of hope for is that they get into a, uh, or are in a stable long-term relationship because if they're not, then it's like their mating psychology is activated all the time and they can't concentrate right, on right. the work. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. It it stabilizes things. Yeah. You see the best, the best teams in the world, right? There's uh, a president and his wife and, you know, these kind of, Power couples, you can get some who achieve a lot in life, I think. A lot of the uh, the guys who achieve a lot in life, I think, you know, they've got stable relationships throughout their life. Not all of them, but, you know, I think it kind of leans more that way rather than having someone getting distracted all the time with new relationships and, and, and so on. Yeah. Yes. Great, because I wanted to dive into more, because you've done some work more recently looking at women's motivations and interest levels. What would you say are the most common or biggest min- misperceptions of sexual interest, when women are showing interest or not, in men, for example?
1: The biggest misperceptions. I guess there are a few that we could talk about. One is the one thing I've published on a fair amount is the sexual, what I call the sexual overperception bias. And I first wrote about it in my, my The Evolution of Desire, my first book. But then Marty Hazleton and I have published several pieces on that, you know, where we looked at it in the laboratory, and then a bunch of other people have as well. And uh, we've done some laboratory studies. Karen Perilou is another one, uh, a gra- former graduate student of my life, we did a really cool lab study on that topic. So what that is, the sexual overperception bias is basically that when confronted with ambiguous cues, like a smile or a touch on the arm, men tend to over-infer sexual interest on the part of the woman. And the tricky part of that is that a smile is probabilistically related to sexual interest. I mean, people don't tend to scowl at people they're sexually interested in, but a smile is could also mean just friendliness, or it could mean politeness, or it could even mean nervousness. It's an inherently ambiguous signal and so uh, or cue and so. But what we found is that men tend to overinfer sexual interest, and what we found in the lab is one really cool twist on that is that this male sexual overperception bias is especially pronounced with physically attractive women. What's interesting about that is that these are precisely the women who are least likely to reciprocate that that sexual attraction or least likely to have it because high mate value women sexually attractive women uh, have their choice and so they're going to be the m- most discriminating and so uh, it was interesting finding that that men are most likely to do it under conditions in which it's least likely yeah. to be. Active. Do you have any
0: ideas what is, that is, is it because it's scarce and it happens to him once in his
1: life and he's
0: like, Oh, this has to be right. Cause it's my chance.
1: R- right. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, there's a lot of evidence on the effect of physical, physical, physically attractive women on male brains. So even FMRI studies that show that it just lights up the, uh, the nucleus accumbens, which is uh, one of the pleasure centers of the brain. And so I think it just, it, it literally, men feel this, almost a, this high or pleasure or attraction of looking at sexually attractive women, so who are, who tend on average to be the most reproductively valuable or fertile. Uh, but also, I think there's a bit of um, this um, part of the adaptation is projection where men find it inconceivable that if they're so attracted to this woman, that she wouldn't experience the same reciprocal attraction to them. And and even though cognitively, if you take a step back, they could say, oh, yes, I, I know she's probably out of my league. But in the moment, it's very hard to de-link those two. Yeah, in a way, it sounds like when he's more emotionally affected because she's prettier. When he's more
0: affected, he can't be as rational about it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and I'll, I'll just, I mean, I'll give you a, a personal anecdote about that. So I've been teaching about this for a long time, and this was, this was a while back. I was teaching a small undergraduate seminar, and as I was describing the sexual overperception bias, this one woman in the class, it was like a light bulb was going off in her head. She stayed after class and talked to me, and she said that, that this explained why her relationship with her boyfriend broke up. She was very attractive. She was also very friendly. So she was like very smiley, very approachable. And she said she and her boyfriend would go into these bars and guys would be hitting up on her constantly. And so her boyfriend was just his jealousy adaptation was constantly turned on. And it just it, they had to break up because it was it was unsustainable. But here's the odd twist to this. So as she's describing this to me, I think she's coming on to me. Oh, wow, <laughs> right. Even though I, I, I just had mm. taught about the sexual reception, I know about it, but it was like, she was attractive and she was smiling and I, and I, I felt she was coming on to me. It was like, you, it, it was one of these things. So uh, cognitively you can de-link the two, but mm. in the moment you experience that adaptation coming online.
0: Coming from you, that is uh, really powerful. Yeah. <laughs> Given all the time you've spent looking at this.
1: Yeah, well it's it's strange because it's it's almost like I mean, putting sugar on your tongue, it's impossible not to experience that as sweet. Even though I mean you can do whatever cognitive machinations you want, but you will always experience that as sweet. And I think the same is true for attractive women.
0: Yeah. Uh that's that's really powerful. Thank you for the example. What would be some of the underlying sexual motivations of women that stand out most for you? Guys kind of want to understand where they're coming from. Is it the most common? Again, the most uncomfortable ones are uh, interesting. You know, the things that guys might avoid understanding.
1: Well, as you know, I wrote this book with um, my colleague, Cindy Meston, called Why Women Have Sex. And that's what we explored. And what we were interested in, and the reason that we titled it Why Women Have Sex rather than why women want sex or why women desire sex is because women have sex desire is only one motivation for why women have sex. So women have sex sometimes because they feel obligated to, uh, sometimes because they feel it's socially appropriate or they want to fit into their peer group or everyone else is doing it or to get drugs or to get money or people. women have sex for a variety of reasons. So we separate out the question of what causes women to desire sex from what causes women to have sex, if that makes sense. And so uh, and so those are kind of distinct things simply for reasons I explain. I guess one of the things that surprised me. So there's a whole psychology around when women do desire sex. So and so we know, for example, a fair amount about sexual attraction, like what guys women are attracted to. So that, as a general rule, women are turned on by guys who have high self-confidence—not arrogance necessarily, or or narcissism—but but who who are confident, who have status, who are well respected by their by their peer group, who have an engaging personality. So, personality characteristics play in. A uh, sense of humor is important, I think, for a variety of reasons because humor signals. Both verbal adeptness, a uh, perspective taking, because you have to understand what will cause someone else to experience that as funny. It's very nuanced. Yeah, it's very nuanced and, and context specific, and so it requires um, a bunch of real, a bunch of interesting skills that women value. And also, typically, if you do uh, do it in a social group, it requires a certain amount of social verve or confidence. So that's important. In long-term mating, other qualities become really important like uh, emotional stability. Is the guy uh, dependable? Is he in good health? Uh, Et cetera. And then even physical characteristics, we know a fair amount about that women are attracted to guys with a uh, V-shaped physical torso, a high shoulder-to-hip ratio, good fitness, but not necessarily muscle-bound. So this is one of the errors that men make is they... They think that women like men more muscular than in fact they do. So they overestimate. They overestimate. Men overestimate that. So, I mean, one of the things you can do is just look at men's magazines, magazines geared toward men, like for men's health or any of those magazines. Look at the men depicted on them. Those tend to be more muscular, muscle bound than women typically want. They want a guy who's fit, but not necessarily spends eight hours in the gym. Because that also can signal narcissism, which is a big turnoff for women, Certainly, in lo- especially in long-term mating. Well, that sweet of thing. Now, we have to distinguish between – in my work, I distinguish between short-term mating and long-term mating. And I think that's critical because the types of guys women are attracted to in short-term mating tend to be somewhat different than in long-term. There's a lot of overlap. So status is important in both. But in long-term mating, as I mentioned, things like dependability, stability, kind, understanding, nice guy qualities, good dad qualities, more important in long-term. In the short-term, those are somewhat less important. And so women tend to go in, in short-term for more cocky, slightly arrogant, more bad boy, risk-taking kind of guys. Those are more attractive in short-term mating. And so, and so there's some difference, but there's, there's still a fair amount of overlap. And then there's the issue of why women have sex. And one of the things that's jumped out at me is when I wrote this book with Cindy Meskin, Why Women Have Sex, is, is how many women have unpleasant sexual experiences. That is, they feel, they feel degraded or they feel used or the guy wasn't interested in their pleasure, their sexual pleasure at all, or wasn't interested in a relationship or pretended they were interested in a relationship, had sex, and then never called them again. I mean, just really episode after episode after episode. We had a different samples and different studies, but one study, our qualitative study, where we got women to describe their actual sexual experiences there were about 1,500 women in that study. And it was, just, it was just really an eye-opener how many sexual experiences for women are not that pleasant. I don't know if i were off to offer tips for guys boy i mean i think a lot of men have a lot to learn about making things <laughs> good for women and yeah. making them good for women ultimately we, will be good for them because women women like guys who are good and who give them who care about them who give them good uh sexual experiences and good mating experiences and so so I think there's a, I think there's a lot of cross-sex misinformation that could be bridged. So I think a lot of there's a lot of scientific knowledge where men could men could learn a lot more about women's sexual psychology and mating psychology in ways that would help both the women they're involved with and themselves to have better better mating relationships.
0: Yeah, Awesome. some really interesting um, stuff there. Just uh, have you heard of Nathaniel, Nathaniel Brandon? He was a writer, Yes. Um, recently died. Yeah. yeah. I was listening to one of his programs just recently and he was talking in a, in a seminar and he asked um, all the women who had had sex when they didn't really want it, but they didn't assert themselves to say they didn't want it. So they didn't say no and they just had sex anyway. Because he, he used to speak a lot, a lot about uh, self-assertiveness and the importance and, and so on for confidence. Yeah. And there was like 20-30% of the women in the room which would put their hands up. And all the guys would be looking at them and like, <laughs> wow, like, that's crazy. You know, that's something they really didn't think about, Yeah, that there was a situation. Is diversity in the sexual motivations of women driven by psychological differences, biological differences? I know you've kind of said these two things are basically merged from, from your perspective. Is it also situational differences, uh, socioeconomics?
1: Yeah, I, I would say all of the above. And I would add age is another factor that plays into it. But, but all the variables you mentioned are, are critical. I think, I think there are fundamental individual differences among women in a variety of aspects of sexual psychology. One of the most important, I think, is libido or sex drive. And there are just these sheer individual differences. And, and I've known women who just have a very high sex drive. And some women, you know, have an average sex drive. Some women have a low sex drive. And for a long-term relationship, it's, I think, really important to, to try to be matched on that. Because when there's a discrepancy, I mean, in the first few months of a relationship, they're in the what I call the fuck, fucking like bunnies phase. <laughs> and, you, and you don't necessarily notice that there is a fundamental baseline difference in sex drive. But that emerges, I mean, once you get out of that phase of the relationship, those differences can emerge. And if you're really mismatched, it can cause problems because the person who has the higher sex drive is always feeling frustrated or feeling like they're imposing on the other. So that's one. And, and that includes, I think, even how easily orgasmic women are. Some women are very easily orgasmic and other women, it takes a long time and a lot of effort and attention uh, to get there. I think there are individual differences among women and who they're attracted to, which is a good thing. I mean, if all women were attracted to exactly the same guys, that'd be problematic. Yeah. But some women go for the more, um, I don't know what it's called these days, but used to be called metrosexual guys, slightly more, slightly less masculine, sensitive, nice guy types, and other women go for more masculine, kind of alpha, head of the pack, kind of high status guys. And it's just an individual difference uh, variable in what guys women are attracted to. I think that there are also differences in how sexually assertive women are. So some women want the guy to take all the initiative and make all the moves and sort of dictate what goes on sexually. And then others are you know, more dominant, more assertive, more comfortable initiating and telling the guy what they want. There are those fundamental individual differences, some of which I think are, are stable over time, although sometimes they they interact with particular relationships. So you can have a great sex life with one person and a lousy sex life with another person. For example, some people are good in bed together and some people aren't for one reason or another. I think um, I'm just kind of rambling here through a potential list. One of the things that guys, here's another potential misunderstanding. Guys are heavily visual. And so visual stuff matters a lot. And it's probably the primary sense for guys in sexual attraction. For women, it's more distributed. And olfactory cues, sense of smell is extremely important to women. I think guys don't know this. For one thing, women have a, a more acute sense of smell. And so women notice things that guys don't, but the other is they're very sensitive to just how the guy smells. And so a guy can look good. He can sound good. He can be good on many things, but if he doesn't smell good to a woman, it's a huge turnoff. And it can literally go from be a no, uh, non-starter uh, if he doesn't smell good. And I think that's something guys don't fully appreciate is how different women are in that. And it's not just sense of smell. It's how the guy sounds and uh, how the guy feels sense of touch and other aspects. But, but sense of smell, I think is the one of the, one of those things that guys don't fully understand about yeah. women.
0: Yeah. I, th- I think that makes a lot of sense. Just the way guys are, they don't tend to uh, focus on, on smell a lot. How variable is one woman's sexual motivations from day to day? So there's differences between different women and, and stuff, but can a woman change a lot day to day, month to month, year to year?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And situation is situation. And I'll give you a couple examples. So some of this stuff is probably well known to, well, obviously well, well known to you and probably to some of your listeners is uh, menstrual cycle effects or ovulation cycle effects. So women who are not taking the pill tend to be attracted to guys who are somewhat more masculine, somewhat more symmetrical, guys who are a bit more dominant when they're in the ovulation phase uh, of their cycle. Although the effect sizes are there or not, turn out not to be large. But one thing that is pretty clear, and this is, so it depends on whether the woman's on, on hormonal contraceptives or not, because that tends to flatten out the whole cycle in terms of sexual, sexual attraction and terms of hormonal variation like testosterone, estradiol, and so forth. But among women not taking the pill, it's pretty clear that sex drive, sexual motivation ramps up just before and around ovulation in women so that's one thing Uh, but this again this is among women who are not on hormonal contraceptives Uh, but the other thing is and i'll give you one anecdote on this and i think i described it in one of my books but this is a female colleague of mine who happens to be an evolutionary psychologist but she described going to a conference professional conference where she found herself very sexually attracted to the conference organizer and then Saw him six months later, didn't do anything, but saw him six months later, and he was just a, a participant at the conference. And she didn't find him at all attractive. And she wondered, like, what was going What was I thinking? And she realized it was basically a status effect that women are very attracted to a guy who's, in this case, the organizer or a high status guy or the guy to whom everyone else is paying attention and listening to. And that situation of sort of moving from a high status to a lower status position is really important in women's sexual attraction. Now this is just one social context that influences it. And one of the interesting aspects of that is that what it means is that guys when they move from one social environment to another their mate value changes substantially because we belong to multiple social groups. So so I have e- even in my context when I go to an evolution conference, I have much higher status than when I go to, I don't know, a a physics conference or something like that, just to pick a random example. Uh, Or, I mean, I ride motorcycles. So among my motorcycle group, I don't have as high a status as I do among my professional colleagues. So whereas the head guy who has the coolest motorcycle or whatever, he has high status in that group. And so male status varies both moment to moment and social context to social context, whereas women's does not vary as much because physical appearance is such a large, much larger component of women's mate value. Their mate value remains more constant across social context. And so in a way, guys experience these massive fluctuations uh, or can.
0: In fact, kind of the, the life of women, it's more wavy, right? They have to deal with more ups and downs could be kind of like could be more confusing. Like you say, like you, you see someone one day, you see them another day in a different context. And because <laughs> it's, it's very status driven, you're like, well, I, just, I could have shot liked that guy that yesterday, what's going on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. But yeah. Yeah. Must be quite yeah, exactly and, that, I mean, and this even translates into w- w- things that go on within relationships. And we found this in, in our study, my studies with Sydney Maston, where, um, guy comes home and he's gotten a promotion at work. Women say, you know, I know this shouldn't be like this, but I just feel more sexually attracted to (laughs) him. Right. Or, you know, he he just got fired. For some reason, I'm not in the mood today. (laughs) Right, right,
0: right. I mean, I think this is something that guys really struggle with in relationships, you should say, like the ups and downs that they don't necessarily understand. So I think just bringing that up might give some of them some insights as to more as to like women can be up at one point and a bit down another point in terms of attraction and, and sexual interest and so on. Yes. Yeah, it really stands out. Okay, so talking more about um, how guys understand interest levels, one of the things you spoke about in some of your research is uh, sexual exploitability cues.
1: Yes. So, well, that gets to the issue of uh, short term, long term mating. So I think that men very clearly have a distinct short term mating psychology that is distinct from their long term mating psychology. And uh, this gets denigrated. Sometimes um, people bemoan this. They talk about men has view some women as Madonnas and others as whores or whatever. I mean, there are these dichotomies. But I think it's an unpleasant truth that we do have an evolved psychology in my terms of short term and long term mating. And guys do view some women as short term mates if they're pursuing a short term mating strategy or short-term mating strategy with a particular woman, it's it's a different a different suite of psychological mechanisms come online. And what comes online in short-term mating is they basically want sexual access as quickly as possible to attractive women, ideally, with as little cost, as little risk, and as little <laughs> investment of time, energy, and resources as possible. And so what we did some research, and this is with Kerry Getz, who's now a professor at um, Cal State San Bernardino, and um, David Lewis and Judy Easton. We have this little subgroup of, they were then graduate students. And what we were interested in is identifying what cues signaled to men sexual exploitability, that is, which women could be exploited for short-term sex with low risk, low cost, without getting entangled in an encumbering relationship. And so uh, we did it through photographs, but the photographs convey a bunch of information, including things like inebriation, is the woman drunk or does she seem on drugs or disabled in some way, cognitively challenged. So if the woman doesn't appear too bright, then women who are not too bright are more easily sexually exploitable. I mean, same same with guys. I mean, intelligence is one of these things where part of intelligence is social intelligence and and the ability to exploit and not be a victim of exploitation. And then also some women, even by the way they dress, give off cues to sexual exploitability. So even things like like tight skirts, showing a lot of skin, low cut blouses and so forth. They don't invariably mean that women are sexually exploitable, but they're probably probabilistically probabilistic cues that the woman's more likely to be into short-term mating, and so really that's what the study was designed. And what we found is we we asked so we had like several different studies, but one of the studies was we asked how attractive are these women as a short-term mate versus a long-term mate, and we found a fairly large difference. So some women. So like cues to intelligence, men view as very attractive in long term mating, but not attractive as much in short term mating cues to, you know, I sometimes I joke that in short term mating, the woman all in terms of intelligence, all she has to do is be able to mumble a little bit and guys, that's OK with guys. They, they, they have low, very low minimum thresholds on intelligence in short term mating. So really, that's that's what that's about. And that guys who are pursuing a short term mating strategy Are more likely to be looking for women who are potentially sexually exploitable. So, did you see
0: correlations with how sexually attractive the women were?
1: Um, Well, uh, guys found sexually attractive women to be more sexually exploitable. But this is where I think there's a distinction between, uh, and we found this in our other work as well, between body and face. So, for men, body tends to be much more important in short term. Face tends to be more important in long-term, whereas for women, body and face were were both equally important in, in short and long-term. But guys seem to show this distinction between body and face, depending on whether it's short-term or long-term.
0: That's very interesting. Yeah. Guys can probably ask themselves at home if they're, how interested in faces they are in general, might give them a gauge on how motivated they are long-term wise versus short-term wise. Yes. Yeah.
1: But guys, I mean, as, as I kind of alluded to at the beginning, I mean, people, we, we sometimes pursue mixed mating strategies. And so I know a lot of guys who, who do short-term, but they say they really hope they meet the the one and only and settle down to a long-term. And some people do are in a long-term relationship and do the occasional short-term on the side. So it's not like people are in one or the other, although there are some people who are.
0: Right. And then people go through phases. And so I was thinking earlier when you were talking about the mismatch of libidos, I have, I have some friends who have had a lot of difficulty in marriages and I think it could be down to mismatch of a libido. You know, he has a high libido and his, his wife has lower libido. So he tends to go and cheat in it probably to make up the difference and to kind of keep, keep things stable because he wants to stay in the marriage, but he doesn't seem able to do that. So that, I guess that could be one situation where that, that's playing out. In terms of uh, the guys themselves and how they may misinterpret um signals what kind of things could lead to that we spoke about jealousy earlier is jealousy or often correct or, or self-esteem like things about the guys and what, what they're going through currently or some aspects of him that could influence uh, misunderstanding of cues or interest and so on
1: well yeah i think there there's a lot of room for uh, misunderstanding there i mean one of them we talked about a little bit with if a guy happens to be with a woman who's very friendly and very smiley <laughs> that's given what we know about male sexual overperception bias, there are going to be a lot more guys who are interested. And um, uh, so that's one. I think that jealousy is a very complicated topic. And if you're interested, we we might want to do a set entirely separate podcast on that because it's, it's too complicated to get into in a short period of time. But I can just say, mention one or two things about it. Uh, and that is that jealousy in my view, is an evolved adaptation that's designed to be sensitive to potential infidelity and potential defection, that is the woman leaving the relationship. And it's triggered, jealousy is triggered, not just by cues to infidelity or cues to mate poachers, but it's also triggered by things that are statistically predictive of potential future defection or infidelity. So I've already mentioned one earlier, like a mate value discrepancy. So as a general rule, people are couple up or pair up based on similarity on overall mate value. So the eights go with the eights, the sixes with the sixes. But over time, sometimes there's a change. So let's say, I don't know, the guy loses his job. All of a sudden he goes from an eight to a six or woman all of a sudden starts making more money than the guy. She goes from an eight to a nine. It changes over time. Nothing is static in mating. That's One of the fascinating and disturbing things about it Uh, and so mate value discrepancies can open up or an alternative um, mate could present themselves so things could be going along quite well and then all of a sudden there's a new mate potential mate that the woman is interested in or might be interested in so jealousy is designed to it's like a, a a smoke alarm it's a signal detection mechanism that picks up on both actual threats and statistical predictors of actual threats. And so it's difficult to know when it's being, when it's accurate or when you're misfiring on it. Because just like smoke alarms, smoke alarms go off when often when there's no fire. And so it's difficult to know. That's why we have jealousy adaptations that are set so sensitively, because it's really bad to miss a fire in your relationship or in your house. And jealousy... I think can have positive functions if it doesn't get too extreme. So a bit of jealousy is often good, especially early in the relationship because women use it as a gauge of how committed the guy is. So if you go to a party with your girlfriend and the girlfriend starts sitting on someone else's lap and kissing them and you have zero jealousy that tells her, well, maybe you're not very invested in the relationship. Maybe you don't love her. Maybe you don't care. So women actually sometimes intentionally try to evoke jealousy as an assessment device to gauge how committed the guy is to her, so it's a complicated mix of of things. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, so
0: I lived in Asia for a while, and the girls there actually verbalize the need for guys to f- their boyfriends to feel jealous about them. And um, so if you don't show jealousy, they'll bring it up and like why. Why don't you care that I'm doing this? And, you know, I'm upset about it <laughs> because you should be jealous. I need to feel you're jealous. Otherwise, I don't feel safe. And it's kind of funny that they actually verbalize it over there. Uh, I think it's become recognized in culture. In so I'm talking about Shanghai, China, for instance. They used to talk about it. What are the best ways for people to connect with you and learn more about your work?
1: Through my books or my main articles, uh, my website it, it is davidbuss.com. So my name, Davidbus.com. And on that website, I have links to all of my books. So The Evolution of Desire, The Dangerous Passion, Why Women Have Sex. And if you're interested in mating and murder, I have a book called The Murderer Next Door. And then also Evolutionary Psychology, uh, the textbook, Evolutionary Psychology, The New Science of the Mind. Uh, On the website, I also have links to all of my scientific articles, which can be downloaded for free. And then I also have links on the website to uh interviews so if you go to or if you can go to my website or you can go to YouTube and just type in my name David Buss and a bunch of uh interviews so like I did an interview with Richard Dawkins or he actually interviewed me mm. and uh there are some others I did one recently with uh, Gad Saad uh, who's um and that, that turned out to be a pretty good interview so through YouTube the main thing is my website davidbuss.com i think is the main source
0: Excellent. Well, we'll put links to all of that in the show notes, so guys can easily find it all. Uh, thanks for that. It's great. Who, besides yourself, would you recommend for knowledge in this this whole area, or or advice? Uh,
1: Jeffrey Miller is is certainly one. He's published a fair amount on the topic. Let's see who else. Helen Fisher has done some work on the topic. I guess I think it depends on whether your listeners are interested in evolutionary psychology, broadly speaking, because they're there's a fair amount of work on, I mean, there, there's the evolutionary psychology of status hierarchies, status, prestige, reputation, for example, evolutionary psychology of cooperation, of aggression, other things. And these things are all related to mating, but are also topics, important topics in and of themselves.
0: Right, right, right. I think probably the majority of the listeners are more focused, although I can see how status, you know, that's, that's going to drive everything. Yeah,
1: for that, there's, I have a whole chapter in my book. My evolutionary psychology text on status, status, dominance, and prestige, and reputation. So I do think that's an extremely important topic for mating. I mean, given that that's one of the things that drives women's sexual attraction and mating attraction, something that increases a guy's mate value tremendously, as we t- talked about earlier with those examples. And so it would probably help guys to know a lot about status and reputation.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's very controllable
1: and a lot more than other things probably yes yeah you can't alter your height right exactly Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) yeah what would be your top three takeaways to guys who just want to improve this aspect of of their lives just quality satisfaction i know like from your research and everything what would be the top three things you think guys could benefit from
1: well i think one is um there are probably more than three but i'll just pick three that i think are important one is i think it's important to know what what your mating strategy is so are you interested in short term mating or long term mating or, or or both and as you pointed out earlier sometimes the the life of a short term mater can seem very glamorous uh, but as you pointed out it's a lot of work and sometimes it can chew up all your time and I mean, time is – that's all we have. We have a finite amount of time and there are opportunity costs, as economists call them. And time devoted to one thing is time you can't spend on another. So that's one thing. And, and because the types of women – the types of attraction tactics you're going to use are, di- are going to differ somewhat depending on whether you're going after short-term mates or long-term mates. So that's one thing. You have to know yourself, so to speak. Know your, know your mating psychology. The second thing is, I guess, a deeper understanding of of women's mating psychology. And I think that this is one of these areas where, and I've done some research, some unpublished research on it, I'm going to publish it eventually, on all the, the gaps that both sexes have. Like women don't fully understand males' mating minds, and men don't fully understand women's mating minds. And so I think educating yourself about women's mating and sexual psychology. Really can give you a leg up on on things, and we've touched on a couple issues like the importance of sense of smell, the importance of status, and so forth. The some of the misunderstandings like the sexual overperception bias. So uh, knowing your mating strategy, knowing women's sexual psychology, and let's see a third a third point. Yeah, a third point would be would be I guess the importance of mate value, and I guess that's related to. Women's sexual psychology I mean in essence women's sexual psychology dictates what men's mate value is but also I mean one of the one of the good things about mate value is that it it is dependent on social context and we talked about that a little bit with how a man's status varies with social groups a man can increase his mate value by going to the right social group going to a group that actually appreciates his assets appreciates the qualities that he, brings to bear on the situation. if you are low on, this, on the totem pole in terms of your motorcycle prowess, then maybe you don't want to spend all your time hanging out on a motorcycle group. I think that's also an argument for not dabbling in life, but
0: investing in certain areas that you're really interested and engaged in and you tend to rise up and you enjoy it more. There's more women in that area will be attracted to you at the same time because you, you spent some time in there and you haven't kind of dabbled in lots of different areas and not got good at any of them.
1: I guess I, I would add one more, and it's kind of related to that. And this is an area that's increasingly atri- intrigued me. I've gotten, I've written about it a bit, but I, I think there's a lot more to do about that. And that's the sex ratio imbalance. So if you're a guy and you say, OK, well, I'm, I'm a really good engineer, so I'm going to go to an engineer's conference. Well, there are like you know 90 percent of the people there are guys. So you're at a big disadvantage. In a lot of colleges and universities nowadays, there are more and more and more women. So there's a surplus of women in part because women tend to be more conscientious and better at getting grades uh, going up and um, uh, through the ranks. And so they're better qualified to get into good quality universities, except for engineering schools. So there's there's that difference there. But then certain places are better than other places. So uh, Manhattan, for example, there's a surplus of women. As a general rule, larger cities have a, have a surplus of, of women and certain college campuses. You know, I don't know how, how old your listeners are, but for those who are college age, so you might wanna look into the sex ratio of the college campus. So, I mean, I gave a talk recently at a university where there's a, like a 60, 40, um, 60% women, 40% men, and the women spend all their time complaining about the guys, saying that these guys, there's a, they meet a guy, he's like, he would be a four in any other context, but he's like an eight on this campus because there's so many women. So that social context can really work in your favor if you select the right social environments. Or
0: really work against you. <laughs> or really work against <laughs> yeah. you, yes. yeah. Well, David, thank you so much for all of your insight. There's been some really interesting stuff you've pulled out here, and I think it's going to be really helpful for the guys.
1: Well, thank you. It's been great talking to you, and I hope we have a chance to chat again. Absolutely. Take
0: control of your dating life today. Take one idea or one insight from today's episode and apply it today. Don't wait. Do it today. That's all it takes to change your life, step by step, episode by episode. Learn more about what I, Angel Donovan, and my team do at datingskillsreview.com. How we help men like you take control of their dating lives.